The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And lots going on in technology as always. The Bitcoin court battle of the century has finally gone to the jury. And there were really no big surprises in the court hearing. But we're going to talk about that court case and what it means for Bitcoin or does not mean for Bitcoin. Uh, This week, we're going to feature the man who founded Lenovo, which is the largest computer maker in the world. It's a Chinese company, and they're the ones that bought the IBM PC business some time ago, much to the chagrin of many U.S. citizens. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc and Andrew, I guess money is a way to somehow lead to a revision of previous plans. I do not think that Satoshi Nakamoto had ever expected Bitcoin to be worth so much, but now here it is. And we have a court case about it. What do you think about the article? A Florin trial might unmask the Bitcoin creator, Satoshi Nakamoto, once and for all. Could Satoshi actually be more than a single person? In the course of the trial, the real identity might get revealed. What do you think, Doc? All the best, your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, this is a great suggestion, and we're going to discuss that trial today because it's finally gone to the jury. We've heard all the testimony, and we can uh, render some opinion as to what was actually revealed in the proceedings. We got an email from Lily in Fairfax. Dear Doc and Jim, why am I getting a delay notification on an email that I sent? I'm trying to send an email to a coworker, and I keep getting the following message. Delivery status notification. Delay. This is an automatically generated delivery status notification. This is a warning message only. You do not need to resend your message. It's strange that this is only happening with a specific email address. What does it mean? Why is it happening? Is it something wrong with my computer or what? Lily and Fairfax. Well, Lily, no. That What you're seeing is, uh, is the mail delivery system is working perfectly, actually. It's the uh, simple mail transfer protocol, SMTP standard, which is responsible for delivery of all email over the Internet. Now, the email method uses what they call store and forward. When you send an email message, it's received by an intermediate uh, uh, mail server, stored for a period, and then forwarded to the next server on the path to the recipient. Now, eventually, it's received by the recipient's mail server, where it's stored until the recipient downloads it or reads it online. 
Now, the time that a server holds your message before forwarding is typically very short. That's why emails often appear to need to be transferred nearly instantly. But there could be delays along the way. The most likely delay is that your recipient's mail service is temporarily offline. Now, rather than fail to deliver the message, the protocol keeps trying to send it for around five days. And while it's trying to deliver it for those five days, you get a not notification that there's a, a delay in the delivery. Now, after five days is up, it still has not been delivered to the final destination. You'll get a failed delivery message. So there's really nothing to do now until you get a failed delivery message. On the other hand, if your message is really urgent, I recommend you pick up the phone and just call them. <laughs> we got an email from Lee in North Carolina. Dear Doc and Jim, I'm having trouble connecting my new Bluetooth speaker to my laptop. Sometimes it works, other times it doesn't. Uh, what can I do to get a reliable connection? Love the show, Lee in North Carolina. Well, Bluetooth, Lee, depends on both hardware and software to work properly, and, uh, and, and you could have uh, pairing failures across the way. So first of all, make certain that the Bluetooth is turned on. That's always a, a good thing. You want to turn on the Bluetooth. Make certain that your laptop's Bluetooth is actually turned on. So you can go into settings, and you can check on uh, Bluetooth connections there. And you want it, and there are a number of ways for for pairing devices. Like sometimes, if you're pairing a device to, uh, say, Apple TV, that a code will show up on the screen, and you've got to input the code into your device in order to actually do the pairing. So it could be you've got to input a code. Other times, you just basically touch the device and say pair it. Uh, now, like I've got a, a Bose SoundLink speaker, and I have to hold down the button on the speaker to pair it. When I hold down the button on the speaker, puts it into discovery mode. And then when I go to the Bluetooth section of my settings in my laptop, the Bluetooth speaker shows up because it's been discovered and I can click on it. Now, the first time I click on it, it will say, do you want to pair with this device? And I'll say, yes. And I don't have to put a code for this guy. And then thereafter, I just click on it to, to do the connection. Now, if you're having trouble, like if, you, if it's worked in the past and now it's not working, uh, frequently what I do, I'll reboot my computer, I turn off the Bluetooth device and turn it back on again. Um, actually, rebooting devices always, and freak always, you know, well, it fixes the problem most of the time. Now, there could be another problem, and I did have that problem with my Bluetooth uh, speaker onto my uh, laptop. Um, my wife paired to that speaker. And so if the speaker was already paired to another device, uh, like another iPhone, it won't pair with, with my device. So uh, what I had to do uh, was make certain that it wasn't paired to another device because it would just automatically link to whatever device is there, the strongest device signal it's got. So what I did was I went to um, her iPhone and I turned off Bluetooth so it could not pair with it, and then I could pair with it without a problem. But what would you do if you couldn't get at that device, like the iPhone? Like if she so, had it with her somewhere else, then what happens? It's not paired at the moment, that then it doesn't matter? No, no, well, no, if it's if paired and connected, it's a two-step process. Okay. It could still be paired with her device, but if she's out of the house, then it doesn't it matter. Connect. Okay. 
So it will not, you can't connect with, now, now in, the, in the more recent Bluetooth versions, they will allow you to connect to two devices so you can stream, have two streams, but the, the older Bluetooth would only be one stream. So, in, in, so what I would do in, in this case, if it's connected to, to her device, I'd, I'd turn off Bluetooth, or I could simply reset the, uh, I could really turn off the Bluetooth, uh, uh, the, the Bluetooth speaker and turn it back on again. But I had a problem, too, because I had the Bluetooth speaker connected to my laptop as well as to my iPhone. And sometimes it would it re, would reconnect to my iPhone before I could get the laptop connected. So I'd end up having to turn off Bluetooth on my iPhone so I could link it to my uh, to my laptop. So, I mean, Bluetooth uh, is is a little bit quirky, but it's getting better with each update. Also, uh I, I make certain to have the latest uh, um, Bluetooth standard, so I'll, I'll, I'll download the latest Bluetooth device drivers um, as I, you know, whenever I have an issue. We got an email from Nan in Atlanta. Dear Doc and Jim, I've got to buy a laptop and trying to decide between a Chromebook and a Windows 11 laptop. I need it for school. We're using primarily Microsoft Office for my projects. The Chromebook's quite a bit cheaper, but my friends say it's not a laptop and that it cannot install applications. What do you recommend? Love the show, Nan. Well, Nan, that's, that's an interesting trade-off, and it really depends on how you're going to use it. The Chromebook mm -hmm. is an operating system based on the Chrome browser. It was intended to be basically an Internet computer, and it's connected to the Internet through Wi-Fi. Um, and uh, you basically have to be online to do anything. The only offline applications that can't be installed are Google Docs. Everything else must be accessed via the web. Uh, on the other hand, Windows 10 device allows you to install the applications like MS Office right on the computer, and then you can use MS Office even if you don't have an Internet access. So laptops are more versatile, but laptops are more expensive because all the processing is done within the laptop, whereas with a Chromebook, you're basically say you, you, you might be accessing a, um, a remote version of Office, like Office 365. The processing is all done by the Office 365 cloud server, and then your laptop, uh, your Chromebook is then displaying it, so it doesn't take much processing power. So Chromebooks don't really need a, a lot of RAM. They don't need a lot of hard drive space because you're not really storing applications on it. And so they tend to be a lot cheaper. And if you uh, and and they were really designed to be like for a school laptop, they were they they were uh, they were really targeting that 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 um, that product line. And so people that just are using the internet and they're only using internet applications like Office 365 or like Google Docs, um, really the Chromebook is fine. It'll be a lot cheaper, and you can get you can get really uh, quite nice machines, Chromebooks for you know for under two hundred dollars. Uh, we got an email from Margaret in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, I recently traveled to Europe and logged into my Facebook account at several uh, hotel business centers. I'm afraid that I I'm, I'm afraid that I failed to log out. Is there any way to check that the devices are currently logged into my Facebook account? I need some peace of mind. Love the show, um, Margaret in Fairfax. Well, actually, when you log into these business centers, uh, you know, you you got to kind of be careful because they, they actually store passwords. So like if you log into your email, they'll store the passwords in the in the in the cache. So people could go in there, go back to the same email account and log in just using the the, the, the stored passwords. 
So whenever I'm using a, um, any kind of business office computer uh, on travel, I basically look, you can go into the section where they store passwords, and I delete all passwords that are stored. I make certain that's done. Now, more recently, the business office uh, computers, they, they, they have a system set up where if you reboot them, they basically erase everything that was done with the previous user and they boot up again. This is, they boot up with a fresh copy of Windows. This is really designed to protect against malware. More and more of the hotel business centers are having that kind of setup. So if they do have that kind of setup, then after I'm finished using the, um, using the device, uh, I simply reboot the computer and then uh, all, of my, all of my passwords are gone. Now, but it sounds like you could have left a string of passwords all over the place and people could log on to your log on to your Facebook account, they could log on to your email account, and then you'd be you'd be stuck. Well, the good news is with Facebook is that you can see who's logged on to your Facebook account. Um, so what, what you can do, you want to log into Facebook and then you go to the Facebook account settings page, then click on security. It's on the left side of the browser window. In the security section, click on where you're logged in. That's that section. And there's an edit link. Uh, and you can, you, can clip, you, you can look at all the places where you're logged in. And if you click on one of those places, it expands and it tells you what kind of device is logged in and when it logged in and what, whether there's an active session. Um, it's possible for you to say close all sessions. And so... Um, you know, wherever you see an active session, you can expand it. You can look at the details. Now, you want to pay close attention to the access time, the location, the device of the, sec of this, of the session. Now, if it matches what you know you did, it's okay. But if you see a session from, say, an iPad, and you don't own an iPad, then you know something's fishy. You may want to change your password. If there's only one active session under that heading, the section closes automatically. And you can open each one of them and you can actually close that session manually for all of those open sessions. Now, or else you can click on the, the button that says end all activity at the top of where you logged into the section. You can end all activity and it will close all the sessions. And when you're finished, all the, all the active sessions should be, uh, should be gone. Now, if the business office did not have a, a process where they... Um, we're resetting all the passwords. Uh, uh, it might be wise to change the passwords to any any accounts that you that you did when you were traveling. And in particular, when I'm going into an, uh, a business center, I never ever do any banking, anything involving money. I I do it just for email, and then I make certain that I erase all those passwords. But I think it's just too risky to do anything with banking uh, with a with a um, hotel business center. Well, I think you should be okay. You close your sessions and then change your password. I think you're going to be fine. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Indeed we will. Now, who is the biggest computer maker in the world? Did you guess the Chinese company Lenovo? Well, we'll meet its founder next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. 
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Lou Chuanzi. Lou Chuanzi is the founder of Lenovo, the largest computer maker in the world. Lou was born April 29, 1944, in uh, Zhenjiang near Shanghai. Lou grew up during the turbulent period during a turbulent period in Chinese history. His father served an executive with the Bank of China in Shanghai, but he worked secretly with the Chinese communists before the party took over the city. In 1949. In fact, they had a term for that kind of person, patriotic capitalist, which is kind of interesting that even in the initial period of communist takeover, they had room for capitalists who didn't challenge their system. Yeah, and they still are doing that, trying to walk the line between capitalism and authoritarianism. Exactly. Now, after the communist victory in 1949, Liu's family moved to Beijing. After graduating from High school in 1962, Lou applied to be a military pilot, but he was declared unfit for military service because a relative of his had been denounced as a rightist. I guess somebody anti-government on the right. Lou then entered the People's Liberation Army Institute for Telecommunication Engineering. Now, because he was viewed as a security risk, he was assigned to study radar. But while he was there studying radar, he was introduced to computing. Um, And he, uh, you know, after he 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 just continued that interest in computers for quite a while. Now, China entered its cultural revolution during the 60s, during which time universities and schools were closed by the order of Mao Zedong. In 1966, um, during this cultural revolution, Lee told his classmates that the revolution was a terrible idea. Which, by the way, saying that was also a terrible idea. It was a very terrible idea. So there was obviously somebody there that was spying for the state. And he was sent to a state-owned rice farm near Macau in Guangdong for two years. uh, And he was uh, sentenced to heavy labor on the rice farm. 
Now, at the time, it was not uncommon for young adults in the cities to be sent to the countrysides to work with peasants to be re-educated. Now, Lou returned to Beijing and took up a post in 1970 as an engineer administrator at the Computer Institute. Uh, he worked on magnetic data storage for mainframes. He was still trying to pursue his interest in computers. So this in is the this, this is a I, kind of an interesting idea, though. That you know, even though he was supposed to be studying radar, he found a way. You mentioned that he, but that he was uh, learning about computers. But he did this on his own this whole time, so that th- by this point he actually gets hired to do something computing related. Having come back right. from 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 picking rice with peasants, you know. That's right. I've out of the rice farms, and, he, and he, he was able to work on magnetic data storage for mainframes. This was back in the mainframes, where mainframes were the big thing, and China was trying to catch up. They were they were far, far behind the, the U.S. at that time, and they're trying to catch up. Now, the Cultural Revolution ended around 1984, and that gave Liu the chance to join the Ta- Chinese Academy of Sciences. And then he he worked uh, he, he he joined the then he worked on on uh, computer research. Now, unfortunately, the Chinese Academy of Sciences was running low on funds at the time, and Lou went to his boss and he said, "Look, we're having trouble, you know, uh, making ends meet here. Why don't we like start a business, a computer business? You can invest in it, and you can use the, some of the proceeds from that to help support the." Chinese Academy of Sciences. And his boss thought, well, that's not a bad idea. So he, he, he gave them 200,000 won, which was a, equivalent to about $24,000 in the U.S., to start the enterprise in 1984. So they started a, uh, a company. Now, so Liu, along with 10 other scientists, from the uh, Chinese Academy of Sciences started a company. They called it the Legend Group. And they they op- they operated in a small room in Beijing. Actually, it was a guardhouse. I, I saw a picture. It was a, it was a stone guardhouse. It was about 20 square yards, and that's where they started their business. And they started work. They started trying to, you know, make money. So their first attempt, uh, you know, just to get some cash flow going, they wanted to import television sets. Well, that failed. Then the group rebuilt itself by uh, conducting quality checks for computers for new buyers. There was really a, a kind of a need for that. People were buying computers, uh, and a lot of the computers that were produced at the time were low quality, so they would run computer checks, and buyers would, would pay them for that. And then they saw an opportunity. Uh, the U.S. computer manufacturers were trying to uh, penetrate the Chinese market. Well, here's the problem. The Chinese market uses Chinese characters, and the U.S. companies had no way to produce the Chinese character set. It was very difficult with all the characters that translated on a keyboard. So Legend, the Legend Group, developed the Chinese character set for computers in 1985. And uh, and they actually then produced... Uh, the um, some of the chips that would produce those characters. They produced a special keyboard, and then they started working with U.S. companies so that they could sell their computers in China. Now, in fact, the company started producing their own PCs around 1990 under the name Legend, but those were you know Chinese computers, and people wanted uh, wanted U.S. computers. Uh, 
Now, by the late 1990s, uh, Legend had produced a Chinese character recognizer for PCs that, that was interesting. It allowed you to write a Chinese character on a digital pad, and it would translate it into the Chinese character on the computer screen. So you could actually, instead of using a keyboard, you could actually write in Chinese, and it would and it would, it would then go right to the computer screen with the proper Chinese character. Now, their main money, though, was importing computers. For more than 10 years, Lenovo served as Hewlett-Packard's distributor in China. So Hewlett-Packard sent the computers over. Uh, uh, Legend at the time, it was called Legend. Legend then would, would provide the Chinese character set so they could sell the Hewlett-Packard computer in China. Now they tried other things too. They tried to make a digital watch and that failed. They didn't know how to market it. Now, but they wanted to grow. They wanted to really produce more computers locally. So they needed money. And it turns out Lou's father was a Hong Kong banker and he facilitated a bank loan that could actually help them grow beyond their initial stake uh, that they got from the Chinese Academy of Science for $24,000. So, uh, Lou and the five others moved to Hong Kong in 1988. They walked to work. They rented a hotel room for meetings. And um, by 1994, they were selling enough computers in China that they, that they went public. In 1994, they went public on the, New York, on, the, on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, and they raised about $30 million for, uh, you know, for, for, the, for the enterprise. Uh, and what they were doing, they wanted to finance a sales office in Europe and a sales office in North America and Australia, and they wanted to expand production in R&D. Now, Lou learned business on the job by studying the management structure and techniques of such companies as Hewlett-Packard and IBM. By 1996, Legend had, had surpassed IBM for China's market share in computer sales and retained the lead even at the start of the new century. Now, Lou uh, ensured that his company remained on top by introducing innovations like Legend was one of the first Chinese companies to offer its employees stock options, and, uh, and he had many innovative, innovative methods to manage the company. He promoted young people to higher staff-level positions. In other words, if you were a good employee and innovative, you would get promoted. It just wasn't seniority. By the late 1990s, many of Legend's managers were quite young and infused the company with young entrepreneurial spirit. In 2006, Legend officially changed its English name to the Lenovo Group, and that's what we know. Now, Lenovo, uh, Legend and Lenovo, they were actually manufacturing IBM computers in China for the Chinese market. And back around that time is when um, IBM decided they wanted to divest themselves of the hardware business. So they sold IBM's personal computer business to Lenovo. Um, and this is back when they had the ThinkPad. The ThinkPad was their number one product. By the way, you talked about this in a different show a, a while back. From the IBM perspective, that was one of the big bonehead moves in business of all time. It was, it was a terrible yeah, move. Yeah, for IBM it? to give up doing that, yeah. At the wrong yeah, time in history, a, really. 
That's right. They just it, it, well, you see the, the I mean the PC was never the core business of the of, of IBM, which was mainframes, and so they didn't have support at the at the you know the whole management structure, and they 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 basically un unloaded this. Now, what was interesting uh, when they did when he did this, they origin the first CEO was um, who was going to run the new merged group of. Uh, Lenovo and IBM was actually from the U.S. and and it was a it was a U.S. guy and he felt that the real growth for the PC business was in the enterprise selling it to businesses that Th ThinkPad was really a, a business laptop and the company actually initially began to fail and then Lou had to come back and take it over and and bring in a Chinese guy to run it. And they decided to go after the personal computer market where they sold to just the regular consumer. And that shift basically basically uh, allowed them to start expanding dramatically. So here's and the irony, too. The IBM, the, the American who comes in, he's basically repeating or amplifying the mistake IBM made in the first place by uh, shifting away or ignoring the trend toward personal computers. That's exactly right. And, yeah. that, and that's, why that that's why their computer business wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't, wasn't growing because IBM was all set up with a sales force that was basically selling to the enterprise and they just couldn't adapt to the to the consumer market. Now, when he took it over, um, you know, he, he, his management style was he even admits was not very good. He was like a dictator. He made everybody. Sh you had to show up at meetings on time. You had to you had to deliver. And so, if you'd show up to a meeting late, he would make the employee stand in the corner, silent. Wow. Take a time out, huh? <laughs> wow. Hey, you know, but he, he has a pretty good explanation in retrospect about why he was like that. And that's uh, because for the first 40 years, he wasn't able to do what he wanted. And he, was talk he talked about this in a CNBC interview back in 2016. Before I was 40 years old, I was not able to do what I wanted. So I really wanted to discover my own capabilities. I was more concerned about showing my management abilities. Therefore, what I asked for was power in decision-making, the allocation of finances and management of human resources. These were the top priorities when managing the business. So imagine that the first 40 years of your life, you're not able, you have this dream inside of you, and you wonder what your potential is, and you have no way of expressing that. It's really quite an amazing story. Uh, but then he changed his management style, he be, he, and he became very inclusive. And, and he ended up developing a, um, a, a company that promoted uh, performance, uh, which was unlike many of the companies in China, where you would just uh, promote people who had seniority. And, uh, and he changed the whole culture of the company, and it became ultimately one of the most favorable places to work. And they just started growing. Uh, now, in 2012, he stepped down as chairman of Legend Holdings, the parent company of Lenovo. Uh, he spearheaded a public offering for Legend in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange in 2015, 
to diversify beyond the IT sector. He he wanted to move into the healthcare sector and he wanted to apply computers to other fields. And, so he and they've also diversifying. Yeah, they diversified actually into food and way other many other uh, sectors as well, just to strengthen the financial position of the company. And that was his ideas. Even after he stepped down as chairman, he was sort of an honorary chairman. He's been involved in the company, you know, intellectually, conceptually for for all these years. Yeah, and he's a rock star in China. Yeah, I, I can mean, imagine that because he became that was the first multinational company in China, and the fact that they took over the IBM PC business was like a huge status symbol for them. He's yeah. a rock star. Yes, <laughs> he was praised by the by the Chinese government. This was when they were giving them a lot of sway to the private companies. Now, Lu's a, a member of the Chinese Entrepreneurs Club. Uh, uh, CEC was founded in 2006. It's this, it, its purpose is to strengthen the sense of social responsibility among China's entrepreneurs. Uh, he always felt that, I mean, he wasn't really driven by money. He wanted to build China and then give back to China. And he wanted to instill that kind of social responsibility in other entrepreneurs. Lou's married and has three children. So he's... Uh, He's quite uh, he's quite satisfied with his life, and he's had an impressive run as he built Lenovo from scratch. So there's all you need to know about Lu Chuanzi, the founder of Lenovo. So pour yourself a coffee, pull up a chair as we join Doc in the faculty lounge. He will discuss the compatibility, if there is such a thing, of capitalism and communism. That's observations from the faculty lounge next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. Now, private business in modern China has operated for many years in a very permissive environment. The government wanted these companies to grow and to build the economy, and they just gave capitalism great sway and great control. But now some of these companies just became a little too big for their britches, 
and the government wants control back. Now, Beijing's permissiveness with private businesses has ebbed and flowed over the years. Some in China say that the long-standing tension between authoritarianism and the free market has reached a critical point. Now, China grew to prosperity in part by embracing market forces. Now China may be stepping back from the free market pro-business policies that transformed it to the number two economy in the world. For 40 years, China has swung between authoritarian, authoritarian communist control and a free-wheeling re- capitalism where almost anything could happen. And some see the pendulum swinging back. State-controlled companies increasingly account for growth in industrial production and profits where the private businesses once led. You see, the state-owned enterprises invest in heavy industry. That's what the state wants to control. That's what they know. And now they're pushing that. And all this IT stuff, they're sort of pulling back on a bit. And Yeah, and I was wondering, you know, if they will be ready because IT is constantly evolving. It's not the same as building tractors. And you feel like, you know, will a state uh, government-controlled enterprise have the agility to actually keep up in the ever-rapidly evolving world of IT? I, I don't think they are. All the IT companies are growing now at a slower rate in China since, they've, uh, since they have instituted these controls. They're slowing down the, uh, the rate where they, where they can issue IPOs, where they can raise venture capital. They're restricting uh, outside investment in the companies. And the, um, the, 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 the country, uh, I think the current uh, leadership in China values control absolute control now more important than absolute growth and they've made that they've made that decision and i think long term that's uh, that's going to hurt the chinese economy because the government has shown that they really cannot uh, manage state owned enterprises that well this centralized planning of 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 industry um, has not been that successful in china and the uh, capitalism has been has driven everything in China, and I and I think they're they're going to lose quite a bit as they go as they go forward. The thing about communism too is it works on you know the principle of the five year plan, which totally made sense in the twenties and thirties. Maybe I mean it didn't totally make sense, but it was understandable. But you can't work on a five year plan. You don't know what technology is going to bring in the next five years. You have no idea. You've got you you, you don't have a clue. <laughs> yeah. Now what's happening when we, we used to teach online classes in China? We were in Beijing and Guangzhou, and in 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 Beijing, I was teaching master's degree business classes to to Chinese executives who were running state-owned enterprises, and these guys actually did not have the ability to to do a business 101 class. So we had to teach what was purportedly graduate level material, but we were bringing these guys up so that they could actually run a business and do a strategic plan. Because all of a sudden the government decided with the state-owned enterprise, the SOEs, that they have to make a profit. Mm. And these guys, they just weren't accustomed to that kind of thing. And what happened with the, with the, uh, with these new, with the new technology companies in China, these guys had come to the U.S., get educated in the U.S., go to U.S. universities, learn how the venture capital system worked in the U.S., then they went back to China and applied all those rules. So we basically systematically handed over uh, 
to China how to set up an ecosystem for uh, for IT development and you know and, and IT growth and venture capital, and and they they took advantage of it for 40 years. I um and now now they're a little bit worried because these guys are getting so powerful. They're more they're like rock stars over there. The guys that are that led it now now Lou who who started Lenovo he was kind of the old guard kind of guy. His father was in the Communist Party, so he never went out and sort of acted out of control. So he never got in trouble with the uh, central government because he, he would toe the line and he would know what he, what he could say and what he couldn't say. But these new guys, they don't know that at all. Like, for instance, Tencent is a company over there, and, and China has now pulled them, pulled them back quite significantly. This is the latest, the, the latest thing they've done. Beijing said they must approve any new app that that company that that uh, that that company releases before they're allowed to release it, they've they're starting to exert more authority over over uh, over the IT industry. The latest move uh, comes against Tencent comes after nine of the group's apps were found to have committed violations since the beginning of the year, prompting a need for what they what China calls transitional administrative guidance measures. So now the company must submit any new apps or updates for inspection to the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology before they can be uploaded or updated. You know, you got to love the euphemisms in communist yes. China. Transitional administrative guidance measure, <laughs> meaning either you get permission or you don't. That's right. That's exactly what it is. Now, now, basically, Beijing uh, uh, is what they're trying. They're trying to crack down now on all the youth in China using uh, playing games on their on their mobile. By phones. the way, that is the literal definition of a nanny state: telling your kids right. what they can so they play. They, so they're trying to control the amount of screen time yeah. these kids have. Yeah, and uh, and they're also worried that these IT companies are growing so fast. The, their aggressive expansion which was fueled by the availability of the public markets, basically scared the, the leaders of Beijing because these guys were generating more revenue th than the government was generating. And they were afraid that they might be losing power to these guys. So they cracked down on, on all these, uh, like they, they cracked down on Ab Ab uh, Alibaba. Jack Ma was a guy, he was like, he was saying, well, the whole banking system needs to be re revisited. Once he gave a, a, a talk which criticized the Chinese banking system, which is a, the government bank, they canceled his IPO, and he wasn't seen publicly for about two months till they re-educated Jack Ma. Now he's, now he's back publicly available, but, but now he's, he's towing the line. So I, I feel I like they're doing term, some bad accounting, though. The government is doing some bad accounting. Don't you think they could just let that free market work and then tax it? I mean, they can have fairly high taxes in communist China if they want to. They could probably make more money than taking over these enterprises and then running them poorly. Well, see, the, pro <laughs> the, the previous leadership in China agreed with that. Yeah. The current leadership, it's all about absolute power. So the, the the current guy, he's like a throwback to 30 years ago. He's they're 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 regressing to more author, authoritarianism. You know, he's he's implementing the whole Cold War thing, trying to trying to focus more money into into the military. Um, and so there is a shift in China going on here. And, but I think long term, 
the force of capitalism is going to win. I, I just think in the end, you just can't you just can't hold people back. So yeah. there you go. Everything you need to know about China yeah. and what they're and so. What they're I'll tell doing. you what, Doc. Well, we got about fifteen minutes to go. We'll take a little break here and uh, and then continue with Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Let's go down memory lane for a minute. The most ridiculous computer repair instruction in history. In the early 1980s, the Apple III was intended to be the enhanced successor to the Apple II computer. But from the start, it had issues. The model suffered from overheating issues thanks to the closed design and the lack of fan-based cooling. You see, Steve Jobs wanted the computer to be very quiet, so they just eliminated the fan. But the problem was, heat issues became a problem for the Apple III to the point that excessive heat actually caused the integrated chips to expand and unseat themselves, kind of raise themselves in the socket. The solution offered by Apple's technical reps and support engineers on the matter was that the, cover, that the customer should lift up the front of the Apple III six inches above the desk and drop it. <laughs> the sudden drop would reset the chips and business could continue as usual. So and now this, this 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 did not crack the uh, the housing of the computer. To... No, they they only they only lifted the front and then they oh, dropped. Oh my they goodness! Didn't lift but the whole still, computer. wow! They just lifted the front and dropped it. Okay. Now this now this actually worked. Wow! But it contributed to the public's view of the Apple III as a failed machine. Yeah, that that Apple is actually a lemon. Apple III, yeah, the Apple III was a lemon. By the end of 1981, Apple was only selling 500 units a month. It was discontinued in 1984. 
See, this uh, Steve Jobs always wanted to make them quieter, smaller, cheaper, and he was always pushing the envelope. But he pushed the envelope a little too far on that. Yes, he so did. He, he, he was always obsessed with uh, aesthetics, the aesthetics of things. And it's, this was form over function for sure. This was a, a was bad choice. De- definitely. I'm, I'm quite certain that Wozniak, <laughs> Steve Wozniak, did not approve of that. Uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> of, that, of that decision. Right. Now let's talk about the Bitcoin court battle yes, of the century. in the news. It's in the news. Now, Craig Wright uh, is, is one of the guys who's claimed to be uh, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, the, the guy who created Bitcoin. So they, they, but we don't really know who, we don't really have any evidence of who was the creator of Bitcoin. Well, it turned out that Craig Wright was, has tried to claim he was, and people don't believe it, but he had a, he had a relationship with a guy by the name of uh, Dave Kleinman, he and Dave Kleinman were friends, and Dave Kleinman uh, died um, back in uh, back in 2016. And uh, Dave Kleinman's brother Ira Kleinman said, "Wait a minute here, Craig Wright and my brother Dave Kleinman were partners. Therefore, all the bit and uh, Kleinman has said." that uh, uh, rather Craig Wright has said that he was Satoshi Nakamoto. Therefore, he has access to all of these Bitcoin wallets and should be worth $65 billion or more. So Ira Kleinman is suing Craig Wright for half of all of Satoshi Nakamoto's wallets. Now, now that whoever would control those wallets, they'd be the 15 richest person in the world. Now, it's the amount of uh, Bitcoin in those wallets would exceed the net worth of the members of the Walton family. It would it exceed the worth of Charles Koch. Uh, now, Kleinman alleges that his brother collaborated with Wright on the creation and early development of Bitcoin, making the heir entitled to half of the wallet's contents. Now. Now, there's even substantial criticism, you know, skepticism whether Wright is even Satoshi Nakamoto. But what the court case says, they just, the court case is saying, well, we accept the fact he said he's Satoshi, so we accept that. Uh, now, the thing that, that makes it suspicious that he's not really Satoshi is the, these Bitcoin wallets, they, they can track them because the, the blockchain controls all transfers that were done in Bitcoin. So they know the address of these wallets that are um, controlled by Satoshi, and not a single Bitcoin has ever been spent from these wallets. So nobody's actually using the wallets for anything, so it's not clear whether Wright or anybody has control of them. I mean, Satoshi could, be, could have died. It's, it's, uh, and the only way that Wright can prove that he is Satoshi is to actually spend a Bitcoin out of the wallets, which he hasn't, which he hasn't done. Now, if Kleinman wins the case and Wright is not Satoshi, uh, Kleinman will still be unable to access the Bitcoins because, well, because they, they're, they're not accessible to, to Wright. So this, I was thinking that we would listen to this court case and we would find out the true identity of Satoshi, that, that uh, Craig Wright would actually start telling the truth. But what he... But nothing was revealed in this court case. He's he's basically saying that uh, Kleinman was not a uh, not a programmer, could not have been a co-developer of Bitcoin. That they were working on a on a business venture 
of another type, and it had, that had nothing to do with Bitcoin. And there's really no evidence that they were partners in Bitcoin prior to Kleinman's death. Well, this is all a house of cards. And on one hand, there's no evidence that Craig Wright was actually Satoshi and was actually the founder and creator of Bitcoin. And then there's no evidence that this late Dave Kleiman, who ended his life spending the last year of his life in a hospital and he was impoverished, if he had money, he would have certainly tapped into it at that time, uh, that he was the partner of a guy who also may not have been the originator anyway. So it's That's kind right. of a, 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 a sort of a fault. A, 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 a fictitious claim on another fictitious claim, potentially. It is. Now, yeah. now, Wright has made money mining Bitcoin because it was public source. So he did mine Bitcoin and made money uh, mining Bitcoin. But but I don't think he's Satoshi and because he he wants to be viewed as Satoshi because it, it enhances his status. Now, the final arguments were sent to the jury uh, on Tuesday uh, they didn't. Uh, they, they still don't have a verdict, and they broke for the Thanksgiving uh, holiday. And I don't think these guys are are technical at all. So this is going to be a hard case for them to decide, I think. But I think the evidence is pretty slim. Now there was one thing that came out in the case that really was kind of humorous, and we're calling it the dumb move of the week. Uh, it turned out that data on David Kleinsman's hard drives was destroyed by his brother after his death. His brother didn't really know anything about, about hard drives. Uh, uh, and uh, Nicholas Chambers, a computer forensic expert, reviewed five of Dave's Kleinman's hard drives and nine of his thumb drives. Uh, he found out that four of the 14 hard drives were reformatted after Kleinman died, and 13 of the 14 devices have been overwritten with other data. You know what I'm thinking? So you probably destroyed billions of dollars of values just so you could store like a few movies on there or something. He did. I mean, you know, Ira Kleinman didn't know anything about the technology at all. And, he, and so he just wiped it off. So I, I think that it could, it could well be that Dave Kleinman was was mining Bitcoin back in the day because he knew about Bitcoin. And, and certainly, um, certainly his friend could have, Craig Wright could have helped him set it up. And he might have had a Bitcoin wallet, but once the wallet's destroyed, it's gone. And so uh, Craig Wright is saying this, Ira, Ira Kleiman knows so little about anything, he's so non-technical that he can hardly have a conversation with him. But it's, uh, it's been an interesting, interesting uh, development as we watch this battle unfold and we'll and we'll get back to you once the jury comes back yeah sure so they had the weekend off you know hooray for them thanksgiving weekend so uh, but they will resume deliberations on monday uh so we'll see i mean something will be you know decided probably in the next few days i i'm hoping so because it, it would be nice uh, you know i think it's i don't think satoshi nakamoto is ever going to be discovered uh uh, there, there are a number of idea, ideas on who it could be. It could be a group of folks that were that were that were working with it. But I think the the goal of the original Satoshi or the group was to really, really impact the banking system. If, if you remember, the original Bitcoin blockchain was was released back when the when the British banking system was in turmoil, and in the uh, the comment section of the Genesis block, which was the first block uh, the, in, in Bitcoin, in that Genesis section, they're referencing 
an article that was in a newspaper in London, the London Times, talking about the uh, the banking crisis. And his belief is that the the banking system was really unreliable and that we had to develop a way to transfer value and hold value that did not depend on government. See, the viewpoint, and, and you look at some of the writings of Satoshi or the group of Satoshi, they, they said, look, governments, if they're running a deficit spend, they just, they just print more money. And you just keep printing money. And, and if you keep printing money, then the value of money goes down. That's what we're seeing in the US now with inflation. They've had so much deficit spending now that inflation has kicked up. And they're saying, if you want to really hold true value, you need something which is independent of the unethical and irrational ways that governments manage their monetary system. And so the goal of Bitcoin was to develop a different type of monetary system that did not depend on governments. And that was actually quite, uh, quite an interesting and novel idea. And the, the whole Bitcoin idea was if you have a digital, uh, a digital coin, how can you keep it from being double spent? And Satoshi Nakamoto solved the problem of double spending by, by actually having the, trans, the, uh, the transaction, which is stored in the blockchain, validated by people and saying, yeah, that particular transaction has never been done before. That's a valid transaction. And when that valid transaction is validated then uh, by several validators, um, it's then accepted. And so you cannot double spend the coin. And this was the, this, was the, uh, this was the innovation in the blockchain. And you might ask, well, how do they pay the validators? Well, they pay the validators in cryptocurrency. They paid them in Bitcoin. So they actually would validate the blockchain and they would earn Bitcoin. And that's so the original people were, were just doing that. And this was a very, very clever workaround. Now, it's... I think it's going to transform the monetary system once we can figure out how to how to integrate it into society. Now, you might expect the Chinese government doesn't like it because they can't they control, can't control it. it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They can't control it. So they they are saying that none of the banks in China can actually can actually deal in cryptocurrency. The Chinese government wants to develop their own cryptocurrency that they absolutely control. So I think Bitcoin is the first improvement in the accounting system since the Medici's developed the uh, double entry accounting system back in Florence back in the 1600s. And I think it's worth looking at. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu and um, we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Check out our programs on the Stratford website, www.stratford.edu. Look at all of our programs on health sciences, cybersecurity, computer networking, culinary arts, hospitality, and business. And tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.